great to have your company for another edition of Love and Science here on this, um, well, a bit dull, overcast uh, Monday afternoon, but not like it's been in the week. Uh, and I'm just remind you, I'm joined with, uh, joined by uh, Andrew Glester and uh, Hannah Bestwick. Um, did you guys have any trouble with the snow this week? Uh, not uh, trouble. No. Yeah, not not too much trouble. I had to go. I had to go into work because it's not very far for me to go, and I could walk on foot. So it was me and not very many other people in there. Um, but I also managed to make a very large snow dragon, which I am <laughs> no, incredibly, so cool. incredibly proud of. Thank you, you thank you very much. It's my life work. A, yeah, it's an amazing <laughs> snow dragon. Excellent. Well, well, I didn't. I just sledged. I went sledging. I saw, well, I saw pictures nice. of you sledging. Yeah, it was amazing. Your daughter. It was I nice. I, I, really good fun. I've discovered. That pavements, roads, and hills are really boring without snow. Oh yeah, <laughs> and they're amazing with snow. That's I so love good. That's snow. Actually, I love snow. It? I really enjoy playing in snow. Yeah, but no. I don't like the city. Yeah, when it's uh, not snowy. Well, I have to say, I'm a huge snow fan. Yeah, I, lo- I love snow, and I know people fall over in it, and it creates all kinds of chaos. But I did, I did have an adventure. Oh, I heard. Uh, yes. yes, in the, Let's in hear the it. well, I went, I went to. I'll give you the short version. I went to London to do do some work on Wednesday, and I knew what was going to happen, <laughs> uh, and uh, I stayed stayed over, overnight. Kate, uh, did did the next day's work on the Thursday, uh, and prepared for the journey journey back and it went like a dream uh, there were no trains back to temple meads they kept being cancelled oh dear so i thought well i'll get a train to parkway and then i can get a connection yeah. so f- just flew down in, in normal time down to bristol no problems at all right. as i got off the train there was a blizzard blowing and they said um to us uh, there's no there are no trains uh, to temple meads so the last train is gone oh so uh, went out, got a group of people together and said, you know, let's try and get a taxi. Taxis were charging 40 quid just to drive people into into town. Right. But those, there were only two. They were full and they'd, that was it. They were the last taxis any of us saw. Oh, no. Uh, so we phoned round. Everybody saying no, can't get any taxis. So the long, the long and the short of it is, we, we uh, another train did eventually turn up, and it set off, and we all clapped and applauded, and we got within um, a quarter of a mile of Bristol Temple Meads, and then sat for the best part of three hours <laughs> outside of Bristol on yeah. the grounds that the points were frozen. Now, so the first thing I want to say is. Big thank you to all the people who uh, were out there in the freezing cold trying to sort it out. Secondly, what on earth is the problem? <laughs> I really don't get it. You know, it wasn't that bad. Mm. And um, I, I guess I can answer my own question by saying, well, you know, in a country which, for which extreme weather at the moment is unusual, extreme uh, snow or whatever what we what we would call extreme snow for britain is very unusual so yeah. we don't invest in it it also came on very quickly i don't actually feel like we've uh, we would warning. we knew for two weeks this was coming our way yeah i guess so I, yeah I, I believe we were talking about it on this very we show. were we were talking about it on yeah. this show. <laughs> but so that was that was only two days three days before but 
How, I, yes, I've got two questions. Mm. Well, first is, what did you do with your time on the train? Three hours. Well, I wrote a novel. Oh, amazing! Um, um, yeah, that. I made made some new friends. I'm yeah. going to their weddings. So. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually I struck up some very nice conversations. Mm. Bit, people were very mm. chatty. That was good. Um, I was very cool because I I'm not. This is not because I'm. Uh, pretending to be, you know, cool in a crisis. But I did expect there to be difficulty. Right. Um, and I did think we'd get that. I did start to get a bit frustrated. I can imagine. Tell you what was the most frustrating thing was that the chap, very nice man, came and spoke to who's the driver, walked down the train and spoke to us all. Said, I just have to apologise. I'm terribly sorry, sir. And then he had a little ringing sound uh, that would announce his announcements. Uh, later on and he would every 15 minutes you'd hear da -da 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 -da, and the, there'd be a sound you know and then he'd say there'd be pause and you'd think this is it we're going to move and he'd go just to let you know uh, there's no more information <laughs> and oh, uh, i can't tell you how long we'll be here i know this is really inconvenient mm. thank you for your patience and i thought well nice man and he's really trying hard but it would have been better for him not to have spoken yes anymore yeah uh, you know maybe the first like, i will time. only i will only yes. announce if yes. we're gonna move. next time you hear from me it'll be to tell you when we move well, what i don't understand is why can't you get off the train and walk if, if i can understand uh, if your train alone has broken down that yeah. would be dangerous but if all the trains aren't working yeah why can't you get off and walk well there's not is there anywhere for you to get from the tracks just onto a street or anything you'd have to walk along the tracks to get to a station and go out that way surely yeah well you what you say a quarter of a mile outside yeah so we doable. did stop briefly at lawrence hill yeah, yeah. Mm. just very briefly and uh, the people I was sitting next to said, oh, we just, it's ironic, we just live over there. Mm. You know, we're like mm. a three-minute walk from the station, you know. And they could, they tried to get off, but they, could, they couldn't get off. And yeah. then the train carried on a bit further, and we had that three-hour wait. I would, I just for future reference, if it is going to snow again, my top tip would be get onto a podcast app <laughs> on your phone. Yeah. Download the Love and Science podcast, which well, is available. You see, you just gave me that opportunity, didn't I? missed it because i'd heard the love and science <laughs> there, you, there you go but you're absolutely right yeah. i'm rubbish at marketing <laughs> well look uh we are listening to love you you are listening to love and science uh and uh, we're going to spend the best part of an hour looking at uh, science in the news science behind the news and the the, the story uh, one of the top stories that we've found that you do know, of course, there are thousands of science stories when we try and pick the, the best, the most interesting uh, ones. Uh, and there's news from the very beginning of time. <sighs> Andrew, this is, this is has your name written all over it. What's well, this about? Thank you. I'm very pleased that uh, Cosmic Dawn has my name written all uh, over it. As far as I can tell, this involves a ping pong table. <laughs> does it? Oh, yes, it does. It, it does. does, yes. We'll come to that. Yes, we will. So there's... Um, Yes, astronomers have discovered the first stars in the universe, or at least the first stars that we are likely to detect in our lifetime, because it's very difficult to detect them. What that means is, let's go back to the Big Bang, shall we? Right back in the beginning of time, where time itself began in the Big Bang. Then for millions of years, there was literally just hydrogen in a big dark space. 
huge, huge cloud of it. Yes. Yeah. We should turn the lights down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, at some point in that time, the hydrogen started to clump together. Little clumps of it together, uh, it's for some reason. Just so, it's not, so it's not smooth anymore? <clears throat> no. It's not uniform no. anymore? No. no. And then gravity started to pull those larger bits together even more. And eventually, some of those hydrogen atoms gathered into such large clumps that they sparked and became the first stars in the universe. Those stars then exploded. And in that explosion generated the heavier elements, and that's where the elements that form life, form everything around us now, came from. But what we've always thought is, wouldn't it be fun to look back and see those first stars? And it always seemed a bit out of reach. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. You're overcome, so, aren't you? I am rather, yes. So, um, there's all sorts of uh, radio telescopes that have been trying to look back. You know, things like the Hubble Space Telescope can't see back that far. Um, so we need to look into the radio waves to, Wait, to try and look back. what do you mean look back? As in look back in time? Yes. How, uh, how would you do that? Well, li by looking out into space, you are looking literally back into time. So Because, because the light takes a long time to exactly, get to us. Exactly. Okay. Same thing with the radio waves. It takes a long time to get to us. And uh, so you are looking back in time. And looking back through the radio waves, the unfortunate thing about radio waves is that everything gives off radio, right? So if you're trying to find the radio waves from the first stars in the universe, you're trying to listen, if you're listening, uh, to the radio waves, to a very small signal from an incredibly long time ago, which is drowned out by the local... Uh, and more recent and everything else in the universe that's emitting radio waves now it's been described as trying to pick out a butterfly wing flap in a hurricane that's mm. how difficult it is to hear this pick out this yeah near impossible then i'm guessing yes quite this effect but what they've done it with as malcolm said is basically a tabletop radio <laughs> um antenna really mm -hmm. so it looks like it does look like a table but it's it's i think it's about six foot three wide yeah okay so not that big not that much bigger than me really if i was lying down on it my feet wouldn't dangle off the end unless i you know if i just stretch my toes out it's the same length as me right okay, okay. okay. <laughs> and, and that has picked up the signal the radio signal from the first stars in the universe now huge arrays of telescopes haven't been able to do this huge arrays covering, you know, kilometres of telescopes have tried to pick up this, these signals and they haven't been able to do it. These guys have been able to do it. Um, I should name them, really, because they've been so brilliant. I'll come to that. Um, or maybe Malcolm can look up their names, because I'm so excited about the act what they've actually done. I've forgotten who they are. And, um, it, but this, this, the reason that they've been able to do it is that they took this radio telescope out into the outback in Australia, away from the local radio waves. Mm -hmm. Even then, it's incredibly hard to, to pick it up. But what they've done is they spent over 10 years looking through the data, sifting through the data, doing the calculations, and working out that what the, the signal that they're getting here is, in fact, the signal from the first stars in the universe. Now, if that wasn't awesome enough, what... Actually, I should probably tell you what, a little bit about how they know that this is. I would really like to know that. Okay. Yeah. So, 
the theoretical models of the universe, which are theoretical in a scientific sense, in mm -hmm. that they make predictions and we can test them. Yep. And they are tested to be true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the theoretical models of the universe suggest that um, that hydrogen, if we could see that hydrogen, if we could measure that hydrogen, which you could do if you had one of these uh, telescopes and did it properly, <clears throat> excuse me, then we would. Uh, you you would see the effect of those stars forming on the hydrogen of the time. So if we look at the hydrogen of the time using radio waves, which is a complicated thing to do, but it is something that we can do, then you would see a particular change, a particular level of um, hertz mm -hmm. in, in the radio waves in that hydrogen. And uh, they did find that. They did see that. And uh, they have been able to see that. What they have found, it is actually twice as much as they thought it was going to be, which suggests that the hydrogen was cooler than we thought it was going, than it was at that time. Mm. Well, one of the things I find a bit uh, confusing is what you just said about they use these enormous arrays yeah. to detect this. How come, then, they could do it with something as small as a tennis, uh, uh, a, a small table tennis table? Um, Essentially, through an awful lot of incredibly intense, um, clever um, maths and right. studying of the so data. specialising, yes, really, yeah. in, the, in getting listening to the right signal, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely, and they're doing it for over ten years with this with this uh, yeah. antenna and picking it up, and they found it. And there's there's a follow-on paper that's been um, published which suggests that maybe this this difference in the temperature might be caused by dark matter mm. the elusive dark matter the elusive again. dark mm. matter quite mm. um essentially what we're talking about is some people being utterly brilliant with a yeah. radio telescope in the australian outback discovering the first stars that were born in our universe yeah. and maybe finding a clue yeah. to dark matter yeah utterly brilliant yeah awesome it's amazing. I was reading the other day, as one as one does in one's, mm. you know, from moments, time to time, from time to time, about um, how uh, a, a um, early mathematician, a Greek mathematician, figured out how big the Earth was, how how how, how oh, yeah. you know how, what its size was, assuming it was a globe. Mm because not everybody thought the Earth was flat. We've left that to fairly recent times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just a piece of ingenuity involving shadows, and you think that's roughly around about 500 BC. And uh, two and a half thousand years later, uh, which is a very short time in, in, in history, we are figuring out, we're listening to the beginnings of the universe. Oh, That's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Incredible. Yeah, this is a story that uh, a group of uh, scientists using a small radio telescope in the Australian outback in a place called Murchison, uh, which was tuned to detect the earliest ever evidence for hydrogen, have actually been listening uh, to the very beginnings of uh, the universe. Um, uh, given that the cosmos is roughly 13.8 billion years old, it means we're listening back more than 13 uh, billion years. And um, 
it means that the first stars lit up a full nine billion years before even our own sun flickered into life. Yeah, That's uh, quite incredible. Oh, sorry, the uh, name is Judd Bowman. Yeah, I was going to say, Judd Bowman of Arizona State University, United States. Nice one, Judd. Is the Good lead author. Yeah, congratulations to you and your colleagues. That's amazing. Well, I don't know about you, I'm blown away. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed you are. And uh, we have been uh, talking about the cosmos. We're going to come a little bit uh, uh, closer to home now. Actually, the human body, we're talking about diabetes. Um, uh, You may well have heard that there are two types of diabetes, type 1, a disease of the immune system, which affects around 10% of people. Uh, who have the condition in the UK and it attacks the body's insulin factories so there's not enough of the hormone to control blood sugar and type 2 seems to be uh, seen as a disease of poor lifestyle as body fat can affect the way insulin works so they both have a similar result uh, but uh, they have different causes now Hannah it seems that uh, we're talking about five types, possibly. Yeah. Five types of diabetes. C- can you just explain to us? I know, you know, when, when you're not an expert on diabetes. Cool, good, thank you. That. But uh, um, what, what do you know about what insulin actually does? Oh, goodness me. Um, insulin is important in regulating how much sugar is in your blood. Um, sugar is related to energy, isn't it? Um, so we, we, we're, we're yes, busy converting some, some sugar into energy. Mm-hmm. And if you've got too much, insulin's involved in storing the excess sugar in, right. in cells. Okay. And there's another another hormone that's involved in releasing that sugar again for use at a yeah, later date. But which is adrenaline, I think. Um, I think it's is glucosamine it or something, oh, right, something okay. like that. It's something Much else. Much more sophisticated than I thought. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's... A hormone that is important for regulating those blood sugar levels. But what happens with diabetes is that you either, like you said, stop being able to produce as much as you want or you need for your uh, for your body's needs and its metab- metabolic needs, or your cells stop responding to the effects of insulin. And they, you are producing insulin, but it, you're, you're not responding in the in the appropriate way. Um, and that's essentially what the difference has been thought to be between type one and type two. Type 1 is primarily associated with autoimmune disorders um, that are responsible for attacking and damaging the um, beta cells, which are in your pancreas, which do make the insulin. And the other type is uh, type 2. It's just associated with, with um, being mostly associated with being um, obese or having poor lifestyle um, in terms of how uh, what you're eating and things like that, if you eat particularly sugary things. That's what people often associate it with. And it seems that that might just be a very, very simplistic view. Um, this study has been done recently by the Lund University of Diabetes, uh, uh, sorry, Lund University Diabetes Centre in Sweden and the Institute for Molecular uh, Medicine in Finland. They've worked together to look at 14,775 patients along um, with using a detailed analysis of their blood. And from looking at those uh, around 15,000 patients, they have categorized five or defined five different distinct groups of of kind of new type um, differentiation between the, um, the 
ways that uh, diabetes can come about. Wow. So that, so this should mean then that um, instead of having a sort of a broad, it's like it's like almost. So this is how I understand mm-hmm. it. So it's in saying, oh well, you've got you've got an infection. Try some penicillin. Yeah. Uh, it's you've got an infection of this type. You need this antibiotic. Yeah, it's it, it's, a bit like, it's, it's going paving to be the way for similar some very, to that. Yeah, yeah. some very pre- uh, specific, but individually um, tailored medicine. Hopefully, that's paving the way for that kind of revolution in in the way we treat diabetes. Yeah. Um, the five different types that they have uh, laid out are number one is uh, severe autoimmune, autoimmune, which is um, mostly what we would. Uh, associate with type 1 anyway uh, people who are very young and seemingly healthy get an autoimmune disease which stops them being able to produce insulin type 2 is severe insulin deficient so it doesn't seem to be associated with an autoimmune problem but you aren't producing insulin in the way that you need to be so yeah. there's something wrong with the beta cells there yeah. then severe um, insulin resistant which is generally generally people who are overweight um, they do make insulin but the body's no longer responding yeah. fourth is mild obesity related so patients are usually very overweight in this category Category, but uh, metabolically, they're much closer to, to normal than um, in group three, which just have the uh, the severe insulin resistance. And the final group is um, mild age-related diabetes, and it can just uh, diabetes can just set in in old, uh, older age. Yes, and they are significantly older in this group than than in the other four groups. Um, and d- the disease symptoms tend to be milder as well. As well, there. Yes, you you do often hear of older people saying, "Oh well, I've been diagnosed with with diabetes." Yeah, having never uh, had any yeah. problems with it before. Yeah, 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 ex- exactly. And what this means is that it just allows people to be able to be more specific with the kind of uh, treatments that they give. So. Um, there's so group number two here the severe insulin deficient has a higher risk of blindness um, developing blindness uh, than the other groups and group three has a higher risk of kidney disease so you can you can screen more specifically to the the relevant associated um, problems that can come alongside diabetes which just means you can keep a better eye on what what might go wrong um, more precisely really well that's that's very well welcome news mm. i was just looking so i can give some credit to who uh, who said it but uh, you i know you've already said it it was the lunt University yeah, Diabetes Centre in Sweden, um, but the researchers are from Sweden and from Finland. Well, mm-hmm. thank, thank yeah. you very much, researchers. Yeah. It is important to note as well yeah. that this is only done on um, Scandinavians. Um, it's not done in any other population. This, they're all all from Scandinavia. The patients they were looking at, and yes. the the risk of diabetes does vary greatly around the world. Um, there is an increase of risk of diabetes in um, if you're from South South Asia as well. Yeah. So there could there one of the researchers I, f- I forget their name now, but they did state that there could be 500 groups. They could be 500 groups, and they've only managed to find five within the specific group, the Scandinavian group that they looked at, um, because there, there's so many other factors that can come into play um, genetically and environmentally as to whether or not you de- develop diabetes and how. I had a, an interesting... Um, actually, one of the students at UWE yeah. uh, did a, a, an interview, a research interview, um, and found out that uh, this, is, this is from somebody researching diabetes that lots of people are not treated for the right type of diabetes that they had yeah. let, let alone the five that they're suggesting yeah. here from the London Institute <laughs> but the type one type two that people are uh, sometimes there's a you know they're tested and then and then they develop 
perhaps in addition yeah a, yeah. a, a, a different kind of diabetes or their, or, their, or their diabetes profile if we can call it that changes but the treatment isn't changed mm -hmm. and therefore you're not feeling that much better yeah it doesn't necessarily help and that's yeah. one of the things they mentioned about the the first two groups one which is um where you're not producing insulin but you have as a result of an autoimmune disorder and the second group where you're not developed not producing insulin but it's not an autoimmune disorder yeah. those two potentially should actually be treated it's very similarly, but at the moment, only one of those will be treated um, under type 1, but the other will be under type 2, even though they're actually both associated with non-production of insulin. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's move to something more cuddly than, than di <laughs> diabetes, as, as, as important as that is. Um, and this is, this is a very um, important find, too. Apparently, a penguin super colony has been spotted from space. And uh, the, this is a story from Jonathan uh, Amos and uh, Vicky Gill. Vicky Gill, by the way, uh, used to be at UWE on the same course that you guys oh. did. Hey. Yeah, she did. What uh, Victoria Gill, science correspondent, BBC News. And uh, she, um, along with uh, Jonathan Amos, have uh, put this story out about the largest population of penguins found um, on the Antarctic Peninsula. So um, scientists have stumbled across a huge group of previously unknown uh, Adelie penguins. I wished I'd saved Adele for after this story <laughs> uh, in, her, in their honour uh, on the most northerly point of the Antarctic Peninsula there's 1.5 million birds that's incredible one that's half million amount. birds uh, that's, a, that's a penguin city <laughs> yeah and uh, they were first noticed when great patches of their poo guano <laughs> said that with great gusto there didn't you <laughs> poo should always be said with great gusto the guano uh, showed up in pictures taken from space I heard uh, uh, someone talking about this and he said it really really smells bad oh, yeah, but, no. after, but after a while you get used to it yeah. I don't know not in space though you can't no, smell it in space. no not no. in space no. Yeah. Yeah. no when you're down near uh, near lots of penguins I was going to say I find that quite peculiar that you would you would see the the guano the yes mm -hmm. rather of, rather the, than the, them but then I've got guinea pigs in our house and I can understand how that works <laughs> <laughs> there's an awful lot of poo that comes out of these things yeah. I don't I think it's uh, from the images on on the um, the article it looks like it's because the guano makes a very uniform coloured like. Right. Almost, almost round section right. around where the colony is, it spreads. and it's different. It uh. looks different to the way the surrounding grass and like the ocean looks and the other rocks because okay. it's all a distinctive colour. And then you can think there's probably some birds on that because yeah. that's poo. <laughs> yeah or something like that yes. i'm sure yes probably something more scientific than just that yeah. and these penguins are very intrepid because they live um on some islands called the danger islands oh yeah so that's quite good isn't it is that why we've not found them before because <laughs> everyone's been yeah. going let's I not mean, go there it's the danger islands. i think that is one of the reasons they said they didn't go they haven't been there before is because it's really difficult to reach which is why they had to use satellite imaging to find them yeah. and once they'd decided whether or not there might be penguins there they had to get higher resolution pictures to have a look at it and then they finally went down in 2015 i think and got, went on foot to have a look at the penguins but used drones to fly in a grid pattern and take photos which they then stitched together to make a huge a huge 
individual photo, I don't know, um, and then used an algorithm to count the penguins. And the algorithm told them there were seven, 751,527 pairs of penguins, oh. uh, which is how it works out to be about 1.5 million penguins. Wow. Yes, a team member, Dr. Tom Hart, who's from uh, Oxford, said it's a classic case of finding something when no one really looked. The danger islands are hard to reach, so people <laughs> didn't really try that hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there is a, uh, some people have talked about this and said um, it's also significant that these animals are... Uh, in such large concentrations away from where people would find find them yeah in other in, in other words that um, maybe they thrive away from us there's no proof of that but that might be what's going on isn't yeah it? there's also they, they did mention that in uh, particularly on the west side um there's the other populations of Adelie penguins are declining and this could be due to, again, the decline of sea ice which supports lots of krill populations, small crustaceans that the Adelie penguins eat. That's their diet and that that's one of the that is also a problem that we've caused is the the um the reduction of sea ice through through global warming and climate change um but it is hopeful because they've said that now that they've found this super colony in this particular area um that colony sits right in the middle of a couple of proposed new protected areas around around the antarctic yeah that's the one yeah. and <laughs> so it should it should help support the case that it should be protected and um perhaps help improve the protection that it gets in the end which is really really hopeful the only way I think this story can get, you know, more exciting is mm. if um, when the drones fly over, the penguins start to dance in formation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, year, years ago, I was lucky enough to go to um, Australia d down to uh, Melbourne. And there's a place um, actually, well, we drove further south uh, down to the coast to um, a, a place called Phillip Island. And... Um, uh, on, on Phillip Island, it's fa it's famous for its king penguins, and the people just said said to us, just just watch, because the, it's about now that the penguins are coming back from their hunting trips, mm. and just watch what happens. And so we waited, nothing, nothing, nothing. Suddenly, a couple of penguins pop out of the water as if they've been as if from know, fired out of the <laughs> yeah, water. Yeah. They suddenly appear, uh, stand on the beach, and then. Bang, bang, bang! Load of others pop out, and so you realise there's hundreds of these penguins all standing together. Then one of them, when they're all together, they just stand looking at each other, you know, and, and, and don't seem to know what to do. One of them strides out, and they all follow behind and start marching up the beach. It's the strangest yeah, thing, yeah. really, the strangest so thing. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, they are absolutely. Uh, Charming creatures. Yeah, I'm a big fan of penguins. Oh, yeah, I'm a big fan yeah. of penguins. You like penguins, Hannah? Yeah, I like penguins too. Oh. <laughs> Me too, guys. The love and science penguin loving. <laughs> and uh, you're listening to uh, Love and Science, and you're on BCFM 93.2 FM or bcfmradio.com. Um, you can uh, go to uh, BCFM Radio and uh, you can find 
loads of programmes that have been broadcast on our award-winning station and listen to them again, including this show and um, uh, many others. So I'd uh, urge you to do that. Uh, we're all about science, so we're going to stick with that. And um, there's a, a story uh, all about... What is it that we're, we're doing next? We're, we're talking all about holding hands. We are. All about so tell us about that, Andrew. Uh, oh, holding hands. Uh, well, it's a thing that we do when we sort of feel close to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't just a minute on Radio 4. Um, well, I, so there's a story that holding hands can sink brainwaves, ease pain. Oh. And the more empathetic somebody is the more that that happens. Now, I have to be honest, mm -hmm. and anybody who likes a bit of Star Trek will ag agree with me, that this is, this is a Vulcan mind meld, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> essentially, the study shows, or suggests that it shows... Suggests, yes. ...that um, when couples who are in love... We'll come to the detail. <laughs> couples who are in love, um, when they hold hands, when one of them is in pain they hold hands, then the pain is lessened more by the ones who have a more empathetic partner. And if they don't hold hands, then the pain is greater. Mm -hmm. So I'll try and explain it a little more. So if, if a couple are holding hands, I'm holding hands for myself as I say this. Um, it's true. Does it help? <laughs> Are you, are you, do you feel comforted? So. I don't know. Have you seen? No, I was going to go off on a tangent. I'll stop it. Stop the tangent <laughs> before I'm doing time. Okay. So if you're holding hands, right, um, what they've done, they've scanned their brains. So yeah. they've actually seen what their brains do. It's not, it's not a self-reporting of, yeah. of the pain. It's that their brain activity sinks. So they, their brain activity starts behaving the same as each other and it is and it does more so if they're holding hands and their activity the the pain that is felt by the person who is feeling pain is lessened if by two things one if their partner is more empathetic towards them and even more so if they're holding hands that's the story i loved that story there are complications hannah there are there are so many complications okay my oh, shoot him down i'm sorry no i'm not going to be i'm not going to be too too horrible. There are things about this um, article that are interesting, that brainwaves and the patterns of, of brainwaves do line up and do match up when you're holding hands. But my main problem with this was that it was it made it sound like these the man and the par partnership just had some kind of magical effect that he he laid hands on his partner and she felt no pain anymore but <laughs> realistically it could it could be many things that are causing that effect so yes. if I suspect they're saying this has that, a lot to do with who wrote the article no no it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with that really but um it's it's saying that if they have a more empathetic partner if the male is more empathetic then the effect will be greater now that could be because something to do with empathy is causing his brainwaves to match up better with hers, but it also could just mean that a more empathetic person is a better partner to have in a relationship, and therefore when they hold your hand, you feel more comforted because they are perhaps a better partner. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't give you any kind of um, information about what their relationships are like, what stage in their relationships they're up to. They also only test it with the woman being in pain and the man holding her hand. They don't test it with the guy in pain and seeing if him holding her 
her hand makes it any better for him like because that's also important to be able to comfort the male person in the relationship it's not always about comforting women yes and also they only do it on heterosexual couples and they think that that's that just is it means that it's only only applicable to to a certain subset of the of the population yes i i just i i agree right yeah in truth i agree but um i think that oh, they, they do say themselves as every good oh, scientific paper course. says that further study is needed mm-hmm. it certainly has some interesting uh science to it but mm-hmm. and is it possible because it's such a small study group that they just selected heterosexual couples so as to just have a clear group to start with and then they're going to go on and do more they they could do it could just be that they um wanted to control for that element mm. um to make sure that what they were measuring was i i don't know yeah. um real or that, that they could definitely say that it was um affecting females from male um i don't know why that would be important but if you can control as many as possible elements in in a, um, a study and only have one thing that you're measuring, then it, it means that that one thing that you're measuring is is more likely to be the effect, if that yes. makes sense. Okay. That there are less things going on. But um, it's also just that, that most, most people in the population are in heterosexual relationships, so they tend to that's a go-to they yes. might be more available for okay. the study well listen I, I really want to know more about this so i'm going to inter- i'm going to email pavel goldstein who did this study and yeah. find out yes. more about it yes there's a university in haifa in israel and in boulder colorado yes the top yeah. ness of denver um i mean it's one of those things that i want to believe it i want to believe yeah. that people who are more empathetic can have more of an effect and i do think it's really important to understand that that physical contact is really important for people for the emotional well-being emotional well-being and things like that and and that's this is the beginning of that kind of research into how much of a difference it can make to your mental mental well-being physical well-being just having some physical contact um with somebody else it is a good study um for for sort of first steps into that kind of area yes Um, it's it's important i just had some feelings yeah yeah okay (laughs) Fair enough. And of course, it's very important to to think about how science is done. Yeah. Uh, Really important to think about that and where the biases might be and what the limitations of the research are. But it does point to something very interesting. And and, And this is not a scientific point to make, but it does strike me how how many people there are in our community. They never they're never touched. You know, no one ever hugs them. Yeah. Um, no one holds their hand. Whether, you know, uh, and 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 that is um, that's very sad uh, mm. because, because it seems to be very basic to uh, yeah, you, to being, you being human. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I, 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 just to take that even further, if you do know somebody who you've not held their hand for a while, why not just do it? Yes, you probably better ask them. Yes, first. if yes. they want, if you, it has to be a couple. Yes. That's the point in this. Um, yes. And the yes. other thing is, I really want to know is, can you do a Vulcan mind meld across the universe if you're not touching? Because that happens in in uh, Star Trek Discovery, doesn't it? And just ask him. Okay, I'll give yeah. him a shout. Give him a yeah, shout. yeah. Let's, t- let's, t- let's talk. Next to week's about. Love and Size, we'll have an answer to that. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Um, and uh, John's with us, John Ford, and uh, he'll be um, getting uh, Bristol home uh, after the news. So stay with us. For that. Hi, John. How are you Hello. Doing? Yeah, very good. Why aren't you all holding hands? 
Well, we do, We're but when, really you in, we, <laughs> when, when you come in, we when you come in, we feel self yeah. self conscious. Like when your father walks in the room, you yeah. go, <laughs> "Now you're making it weird." <laughs> Stop it! Yeah. Hi, Dad. Yeah. Did, did, did you get stuck in the snow? Uh, no, I was at home. Yeah, no, just watching it out the window. It was good. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Dug the car out on uh, Saturday, I think. You but, big, uh, big snow fan? Yeah, no, I loved it. It was, yeah. it was all good, isn't it? And I live yeah. out in the countryside, so we've still got a bit of snow in the back garden, actually. Jealous. Oh, yeah. where, where it had drifted, you know, there's a sort of mm. big lump left. You know. oh, yeah. we've, got, we've got a big ball left where the snowman was. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. Can yeah. I just do one thing, actually? Yeah. I'm not going to say who it is, but I've just changed my energy supply to 100% renewable. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Just Google, find 100% renewable. And it's actually cheaper than I was paying before. That's never happened before. Excellent. And I think everybody just take a bit of time out, have a Google, find a 100% renewable energy supplier. They might just be cheaper than what you can, can I just say, I did the same last year and I saved £200. Brilliant. To you. Ha ha. Well, this yeah. is good. So we're not, we're not um, branding, we're not naming brands. No. Just no. Google 100%. Uh, renewable energy. Yeah. Very good. Very great. Yeah. So, John, what did we leave out of the show this week? Well, the most important thing. Um, this, <laughs> day, <laughs> this day in 1223 BC, oh. the oldest recorded eclipse occurred. Oh. Now, this is according to one plausible interpretation um, of the date inscribed on a clay tablet which was retrieved from the ancient city of Ugarit, which is uh, the country Syria, as we now know it. Um, it is favoured, the date that is, by uh, recent authors on the uh, subject. You can tell I'm reading this, but I just thought it was a fascinating yeah. thing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also been proposed as uh, uh, plausible that another date, 3rd of May, but we'll ignore that because uh, today is the day that <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we are considering. Um, by the uh, 8th century BC, See, the Babylonians were keeping a systemic record of solar eclipses. I mean, it's mm. a long time ago, isn't it? Amazing, it is, yeah. yeah. Must have fascinated them, yeah. It is. Yeah. I wonder if they knew what, whether they speculated what they were. I don't know, but the, the, the first total solar eclipse reliably recorded was by the Chinese, and it occurred on the 4th of June, 180 BC. It's also my wife's birthday. This is incredibly wow. old. Amazing. <laughs> She's a tad older than me, am I? But not by that uh, much. <laughs> Mind you, that would be good if she was then. It would. Yes. It would. She could, could, could though, probably yeah. work in a circus or something. Like that. <laughs> I, yeah, none taken. I'll tell her that. Yeah, <laughs> also, um, we have to wish a very happy birthday to um, something that was invented on this day by C. H. Gould, who was from Birmingham, and he invented this day in 1868, the staple. Where would we be without that? Oh, Best oh, thing to come out of Birmingham. Very important piece of technology. I know, I know lots of, I think I'm one of them as well. I know people who are real stationary junkies. Yeah. You know, they just love, think, oh, I, that might be useful. Talking Ooh, about re renewable that. energy and saving the planet, I've got a stapleless stapler at home. Oh, yeah, you, you does it like it in the push corner. the paper through on Yeah, itself. it does, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah. That's good. No little yeah. bits of metal. No, and it's right, the they place. do stay together oh, as well. Yeah, it's a really good, good invention. No bits of very good yeah. idea. Yeah, good yeah. for the environment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, one more. Today in 1936, the Supermarine Spitfire prototype that made its maiden flight from uh, Eastleigh Aerodrome, now Southampton Airport. This day, invented nice. by uh, Reginald J. Mitchell, of course. 
Wow, wow. Well, uh, thank you very much for bringing us up to date with what we missed out on the show. Uh, Stay tuned for uh, John Ford getting Bristol home after the news. Thank you so much for uh, joining us from uh, Andrew Glester, Hannah Bestwick and me, Malcolm Love. Uh, Have yourselves a very good evening and don't forget to join us again uh, next week. Thank you.